Hi everybody, this is Steve Hargadon and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Wednesday, August 18th, 2010. Our special guest today is Linda Darling-Hammond, although she is not yet in the room. And we're hoping that she will be here in a moment. We're going to go ahead with the, the intro. If she is, hasn't arrived by the end of the introduction, then we will reschedule. Uh, Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate. The project I work on is the Learn Central Social Network for Educators that is free and has Illuminate baked in. You can use the free three-person view room. We hope you'll come and take advantage of that. We have put up a call for presentations on our Global Education Conference, November 15th to 19th. This is really going to be fun. Uh, we've got partners from all over the world who are um, advertising to their audiences both for participation and presentation and we're getting a great response so we hope you'll consider coming to that. Coming up on the Future of Education tomorrow another Stanfordite Carol Dweck on Mindset. We're looking forward to that a great deal. Then next week on Monday a, a rare departure, not rare, but a departure from our normal education uh, focus, Amber Mack on her book Power Friending, which is really an excellent book on social media that I think will have good implications for uh, all that we do. Uh, Kathleen Cushman on her book Fires in the Mind. Uh, the folks from the BYU-Idaho campus on their learning model, which was um, described in uh, Anya Kamenetz's book DIYU. And George Siemens, Vicky Abelli's on her movie Race to Nowhere. Lots of other fun things coming up there. hope there's something that you find of interest. If you've missed the session, the recordings are all up. Uh, hopefully there's something that you find of value. Go to futureofeducation.com. The MP3 files are there and also links through to the full Illuminate recordings. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. We hope that you will uh, find ways to be involved. You can do so immediately during the session by clicking on the smiley face or the clapping hand, or the confused look or the thumbs down at the bottom of your participant window. And I'll put my smiley face on. You can also leave messages in the chat with a group of this size. It helps to go up to view layouts and switch to the wide layout. View layouts and switch to the wide layout. Now we're going to give you a chance to shout out in the chat where you're listening from but also on the map look to the left of the map, you'll see a laser pointer, a wand with a red star at the end. Click on that and then click on the map and let us know where you're participating from. Steve? This is Linda. We'll let you know Linda! Hooray! I've been, I've been on for a while, but I can't get on Illuminate, so I just wanted to let you know. Oh, well, are you willing to do this just by audio? Sure. Terrific. Um, can I, uh, I don't know if you're, if you're able to bring the phone any closer to your mouth, but um, it's, you're a little soft. How's that? That's still that soft, better? but I'm, I'm going to see if I have the ability to turn the volume up at all here. Let me try that. Okay. I'm still working on the Illuminate side of it, so I might get in. Do you, can you tell me what kind of um, an issue you're having? Uh, I think my Internet Explorer is blocking this site for voting. Now it can't play the web page. The way the program works is it, is it downloads a small, sorry, it downloads a small Java file and you have to open it. I think what happened is my wireless threw me today. Turning. I'm going to turn my volume up because it's hard to hear you. I'm going to recommend others do the same, and then I'll turn my microphone down so I don't blow you out when Linda's not talking and I am. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, shall we just uh, forge ahead with the audio, or do you want to keep trying on the Illuminate? Well, why don't we forge ahead? Okay, let's forge ahead. You're not seeing the map where everybody's listening from, but we have uh, someone in India. It looks like uh, maybe Japan, New Zealand, lots in the U.S., Canada, Alaska, I'm going to guess Ireland. 
Anyway, lots of fun. Hey, I'm really glad you're here. I'm now showing a picture of you and a picture of your Flat World and Education book. And I have to tell you the the adage that when the students are ready, the teacher will appear, I think perfectly describes your coming on the show tonight. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think That's we're nice, uh, way to frame it. Well, we're particularly ready for your message, at least those who are, who are regular listeners probably are. Uh, you do a tremendous job of providing an, a, a detail to kind of drill down on exactly what's going on in education and what you think the prescriptions are for making change. And at least for me, I can't claim to have read all of Thought World because I read uh, portions of that and um, The Right to Learn. I really felt like it was a breath of fresh air, that it was a consistent validation of some things people are feeling but have a hard time articulating fully. And I'd like to well, read I've it. I certainly had that comment from people. Well, good. I'm glad. I, I want to read a quote, if I can. Uh, teachers sometimes use a verbal shorthand when they evaluate the schemes of reformers, asking whether the proponents of this, that, or another initiative get it. That is, whether they understand the important things about teaching and learning. As the discussion in the following chapters makes clear, what policies need to get about teaching and learning are the same things bureaucracy devalues. The importance of connections among ideas, experiences, and people. The importance of time for deep learning and the importance of relationships among teachers and students. The opportunity for them to create opportunities for them to create a learning community. That was written over ten years ago. Still feel those words powerfully. Maybe even more so. Well I wonder because if we policies are more remote. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to get to that, uh, and, and I want to ask you some questions uh, specifically about that. But I thought it might be kind of interesting for you to uh, maybe talk about the the two books, how, how they're linked together, and maybe what the separation of the two and time kind of can tell us about our current situation in education. That's a great question. Uh, you know, the... Um the right to learn was written in part to talk about, you know, at the level of uh, school uh, and the classroom, what do we, what do we know about how to support students in their learning and teachers in their learning and their collaboration and their work to design schools that are beyond the factory model that we inherited, um, and. In that book, I really did take on some of the policy questions uh, about how policymakers could support rather than getting in the way of that kind of education. Uh, in the flat world, uh, I spend more time on the policy front because part of what's happened in the last uh, 14 years is that policymakers have become more peripatetic. They are more involved, more intrusive, there's more intervention, there's more effort uh, than ever before to run schools from the outside by remote control and regulation. Uh, and you know, while some while virtually all of that policy activity is well intentioned, uh, quite a lot of it gets in the way of the most fundamental things that schools need to do. So in the flat world, what I really wanted to, to do is step back and do a couple of things. One, really think about uh, from a broad policy perspective, uh, what are the concerns and issues that we have to deal with? What's the framework that we should be bringing to that work? I wanted to um, point out that we have choices that other countries do not necessarily, uh, particularly many of those that have become very high achieving and very equitable over time, have made choices about how to support schools that are very different from the choices that we've made. And that we have uh, the possibility to rethink the paradigm that has been uh, in recent years mostly a test and punish kind of paradigm. 
uh, and uh, very much less focused on how to give schools the financial and resource supports that they need, how to give teachers the knowledge support and investments that they need to be able to do this difficult work well, uh, and then how to create settings within which students can be well known, can be well supported, uh, collaborations of teachers, administrators, and parents can work effectively on behalf of students. Uh, and I basically make the argument in the flat world that uh, we have to uh, think about those investments and supports in much more systemic ways, in much more equitable ways, uh, and in ways that um, provide the, the most central uh, resources that uh, educators need, and by that I mean both knowledge resources and financial resources, to be sure that they can, uh, in, in, in a growing way, make up for the extreme inequality in income and opportunity that is the landscape uh, sending children to schools in America. Which you document in, in some great detail. I'm wondering if there's a bit of a dilemma here which is these are uh, these are detailed books and and there's some complexity to this even though you are very careful to make sure that you're drawing conclusions that that are backed up by data but it felt to me in reading it that the dilemma was politics doesn't do a good job with complex issues and yet we're looking to sort of a federal level policy to determine something that, that, that I'm hearing in your work really can't be done at that large level. Well, right. The, at the, you know, the work of education is, is complicated, it's nuanced, it's sophisticated, every kid is different, you know, there's this uh, tremendous need to uh, individualize uh, much of what is done at the level of the school, the classroom, the student to make sure it's uh, appropriate for the needs of that community and the needs of the kids. Uh, policy is very much uh, standardized and um, unable to handle all of that differentiation and nuance. It, it tends to push to treat, uh, you know, uh, curriculum as standardized and kids as though they are the same, which is simply not the case. So uh, policymakers make it difficult for professionals to do their jobs when they start to constrain practice with too many uh, constraints and res restrictions. But those restrictions come about when we don't trust the people doing the work. And so at the end of the day, making investments in a very capable, well-supported teaching and administrator workforce that is highly competent and can be trusted and is empowered to make good judgments on behalf of kids is the better way to meet the needs of students than to try to figure out in Washington what will be the one right way to change a school, to improve a classroom, you know, to meet specific needs. Um, and so there is that sort of paradox in the um, uh, tools that policy has available to it. So I think it's in Right to Learn, and I'm trying to speak softly so people can turn their volume up and uh, hear both you and, and not have me blast them out. Uh, it, I think it's in Right to Learn that you kind of describe the times in which progressive educational ideas have begun to grab hold and then why they don't. Are you willing to rehearse that a little? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think I've talked about several things that uh, are, are, have been problems. One, which uh, really uh, I borrow from historian Larry Kremen, who said that uh, progressive educational philosophies, that is approaches that are child-centered, that are really focused on uh, empowering forms of learning that allow people to inquire for themselves and uh, make, uh, you know, uh, pursue knowledge in, in uh, self-initiated ways as well as uh, in uh, other ways. Uh, those kinds of uh, reforms demand infinitely skilled teachers. And our system has never been organized to produce infinitely skilled teachers in sufficient quantity to fuel those reforms over the long haul. 
The other thing that I point to is that this tremendous inequality in resources to schools, which has grown worse and worse since the 1970s, uh, means that if you invent something that works well in a school with very uh, dynamic, experienced teachers and leaders who uh, you know, have uh, tools to implement a program at their disposal, and then you want to replicate it in a place uh, that uh, may have half as much money, uh, a revolving door of beginning teachers who come and go, uh, none of the supports that would be needed to implement the ideas, clearly it's going to crash and burn. Uh, and the other thing is that of course we have a lot of political engagement in education in the United States, much less buffer between the education system and the political system here than in places like Singapore or Finland or Sweden or Switzerland, many others that we could name. Uh, and what that means is we change course very often. You know, we we go back to the basics for a while, and then we may have uh, some um, reforms around, uh, you know, reading for meaning or mathematics for understanding, and then we have a pushback to a different approach. And so, while other countries are pursuing uh, a very steady uh, uh, process of continual improvement built on knowledge and research and the expertise of educators over 15, 20, 25, 30 years, we're changing course uh, every few years, adopting this reform, throwing it away, adopting another one, sort of that disposable culture that characterizes the U.S. and some other arenas as well, uh, as well as having this dramatic inequality of resources uh, and a failure to invest systematically in the capacity of the teaching workforce. So uh, it's very hard for us to uh, build a system full of good schools uh, like those that now characterize nations like Finland or Singapore uh, or others that I talk about in the book. So would it be fair for me to say that you also talk about the fact that for some of these reforms to work, they really depend on sustained investment in the teachers. That investment doesn't come, and then the reforms are considered unsuccessful, and so sort of politically simplistic ideas take hold again? Right. I think that's exactly what happens. Now, that's not to say we don't have excellent teachers and excellent schools throughout this nation. We do. We have uh, more hardworking, dedicated, uh, and strong teachers and uh, leaders in our workforce that we have any right to expect given the lack of sustained you know, supports for, for people. And the same is true of schools. Uh, but our system is just not set up at this point to really support uh, the teachers or the um, schools in uh, spreading what works and scaling it up. I, I definitely hear that message in the book. I also think that you use the Teach for America program as a way of kind of showing how we have ideas about teaching that are just not fair to teachers. Well, yeah, we, we tend to, um, you know, teaching has always been underappreciated, I think, in the United States. Uh, since the early days of the factory model. Uh, this idea that you could teacher-proof the curriculum, you could prescribe what teachers would do, you didn't need very well-educated people or uh, very highly trained people to become teachers. Back in the early 1900s there were writers uh, and superintendent leaders um, encouraging the hiring of less well-trained teachers because they would be more sympathetic with the scripted curriculum that was being put in place in the early 1900s. Uh, and that notion about teaching has continued in the United States, that uh, we don't want people who will talk back, who will you know, have their own ideas. <laughs> you know, we, we think of teaching as something that almost anyone can do. Uh, and so in this context, while other nations have been building this very, very uh, well-supported, highly expert teaching force, really, um, in Singapore, you know, the, and Finland, when you go to school to become a teacher, you get three or four years of teacher education completely at government expense 
with a salary or a stipend while you're training. Uh, and in Singapore, you'll come in earning more than a beginning doctor in government service would earn, uh, and you will be very well uh, trained uh, for the work. Uh, here, we uh, often have this idea that uh, it's it's short-term work, it's temporary work. You know, you can come in, you can go out, you can do it with just a few weeks of training, uh, and that's okay. That it's fine. You know, give people a scripted curriculum, they'll be able to make their way. So you know, Teach for America is just one of many manifestations of that view that it's not a serious profession. Now, the good thing about Teach for America is that it has developed a very strong recruitment strategy. It really brings some very um, highly able people into teaching. They uh, tend not to be as effective as other teachers in the first two years. Those who stay are very effective quite often, but the expectation of that they will leave after two years uh, feeds in those districts this continual churn, the expectation that you need to have a, a scripted curriculum because that's what novices with, who are learning on the job will, will need and creates uh, a failure in the system to make the investments that are necessary to get very bright people to come into teaching and be extremely well prepared and make it their career. And that's what we ought to be aiming for uh, in the United States of America, not just in wealthy also, but in all districts, including Oakland and Compton and New York City and Chicago and so on. And we could do that. Uh, I, I wonder why it is that we, with all of the American know-how, the ability to put a man on the moon in 10 years, I have not gotten serious about the very simple steps that would be needed to um, make those uh, relatively small but relatively high yield investments. Doesn't it also reflect a little bit of a um, kind of national belief that students succeed based on their intelligence? Uh, does what? Uh, well, we do have that national belief. I didn't catch the beginning of your sentence. <clears throat> but whereas uh, many countries organize their education system around the notion that everybody can achieve high standards, uh, and effort is the determining uh, variable that needs to be cultivated you know, along with good and persistent teaching, uh, we do tend in the United States to have more of a cultural view that it's all about differential ability and that um, you know, the cream will rise to the top and, and that um, the school structure should be organized around, um, around that ability-normed perspective. There's, there's so many rich discussions in the book. And I'm sorry, I keep trying to turn my volume down, but I know it, it keeps popping up. Uh, but I know we're not going to get to all of them. But you do talk about uh, teaching not actually being a profession. Do you want to describe what you mean by that? Well, uh, when we think of professions, uh, professions uh, in general, highly developed professions, have three features. The first is that uh, there's a moral commitment, an ethical commitment, to do what is best for the client and to make decisions on that basis, not what is cheapest or most expedient. You know, the Hippocratic Oath in medicine uh, do no harm. There are similar ethical commitments in other fields. There is. Um, we rely on engineers, for example, to uh, know how to build a safe bridge and then to insist on doing that even if they're working for a county government that would like to shave corners and do things that were unsafe. Uh, professionals are expected to uh, adhere to the well-being of the clients that they serve, the public that they serve. The second condition is really related to that, and that is a knowledge base that is uh, shared by all the members of the profession and that is a prerequisite to becoming a member of the profession so that you can count on the fact that you know all doctors will have had certain kinds of uh, training, all engineers, all accountants, all lawyers, uh, and that they will know the, you know, the uh, fundamentals that allow them to do what is best for their clients based on knowledge, not just based on guesswork or whatever they feel like doing. The third thing is that professionals define and transmit and enforce those standards of practice. 
uh, they take responsibility for one another and for developing ongoing uh, research and knowledge in their uh, profession. And while many teachers behave like professionals and in, in a sense are professional, the occupation as a whole is not a profession because uh, number one, um, uh, teachers do not necessarily get access to the knowledge that exists that they need to have to serve their students well. We invest so little in the preparation and ongoing professional development of teachers here that uh, most teachers don't get access to what's known about how to organize an effective curriculum, about how to teach English language learners, about what to do for a wide range of special education students. The knowledge exists that's not being transmitted in a routine way to all teachers, partly because of the variability in preparation, partly because people can come into teaching with no preparation at all, which is just not done in other professions. Uh, the other thing is that because uh, schools are so politically managed and there's so much governance outside the professional knowledge base, teachers can quite often be asked to do things that are actually malpractice, that are not good for children, that are not likely to um, improve learning and achievement, but because somebody on a school board or a state legislature or even the U.S. Congress has decided that uh, this is going to be a, a requirement, uh, teachers can be uh, held to technical requirements that are not actually professionally well grounded. Uh, and unlike other professions, teachers have had very little opportunity to take control over the standards of practice for their field. Uh, the one relatively recent exception would be the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards uh, formed in the late 1980s with a majority of teachers on the board and uh, expert teachers involved in setting standards and developing uh, assessments of teaching that are, are truly good representations of what effective teaching should be. So we have a long way to go to put together all of the components of what would allow true professional uh, preparation, uh, the sharing of expertise, and the management of the profession according to professional norms. So you call it a Faustian bargain, low paid teachers who are micromanaged. And you make the connection between, um, and something that's been nagging at me for a few months here, between what the change that took place in businesses in the 1980s when they restructured away from prescriptive hierarchies to problem-solving teams. Is there any kind of a model here for us from that business period that would help to understand how to bring about change in education? Well, that's a great um, uh, question and, a, and it's a good example. The, um, there are lots of educators who, uh, given the opportunity, have designed schools that are, in fact, organized around problem-solving teams, around professional uh, practices, around uh, ways by which, which uh, colleagues in collaboration with parents and students can uh, build a much more effective school organization. And we've had hundreds of these across the country. If there are listeners who have been in the profession as I have for 30 years or so, I entered teaching in, the, in 1973. Uh, many of us have built uh, schools that are better designed, that like those businesses have been restructured. Many of them have been successful. And probably uh, others like myself have seen good programs and good schools come and go because the policy system has not supported their continuation and their expansion. Uh, you know, kind of back to that problem. So I think right now the discourse is so much around um, the problem is with teachers or administrators or you know, uh, educators in the system rather than um, really reflecting on the role that the um, short-sighted policymaking has played in undermining and failing to scale up and expand uh, successes that have been created. So part of our uh, problem. I think if we had Washington, D.C. Uh, and state capitals running uh, American businesses the way that they regulate schools, relatively few businesses would have been able to move into more productive models as well because they would have been held in place 
um, doing, um, you know, the kinds of archaic practices that uh, date back decades to the Henry Ford assembly line. Uh, and, you know, in fact, we do have businesses that are, have not evolved, but we do uh, have much more support for new models of organization uh, and its continuation. We have some, some districts that have been innovative. We have some states that have uh, created better ways of thinking about what the future should be. I think we should take a page out of those books. Um, I think about um, what's been going on in some states in New England, New Hampshire, and Maine, uh, and Vermont that have been doing very innovative and interesting work around school redesign and uh, different ways of supporting and, and um, managing schools. I think about Jefferson County in uh, Kentucky that's, uh, that's taken a systemic approach. There are these success stories. We've got to understand them and be prepared to both scale them up in practice and scale them up in policy. So there was a funny tweet yesterday. Uh, someone in, in retweeting about the session today said, uh, Steve's going to be interviewing the woman who should have been education secretary. Uh, having read Malcolm Gladwell and the Heath book on stickiness, if you were in a position of um, influence in the current administration, what kinds of things would you think about doing to help facilitate this broader change in our perspective on education? Well, if I um, were trying to think about how to frame the agenda going forward, I would do several things. Uh, one thing I would do is immediately, uh, to the extent that there has been greater reach by the federal government to states around closing the achievement gap, I would use that reach to call attention to and create incentives for closing the opportunity gap. Uh, I think we will get further uh, by uh, closing the resource gap. You know, in most states, some districts are spending two or three times as much as other districts. Uh, the rich get richer, the poor, especially these days, get poorer. Uh, we need incentives uh, while we're asking um, states and districts to uh, improve achievement to uh, equalize funding and resources, and I think that uh, states should have to demonstrate how they are closing the opportunity gap as part of what they need to do under uh, federal law, ESEA, and others. Uh, get get us, I would uh, make a major push to ensure that all students and particularly most immediately all low-income students get access to preschool education. There's an achievement gap before school starts. Uh, and in fact, some studies show that in rich and poor districts alike, teachers are getting reasonably comparable annual gains for the kids that they teach. But there's a huge achievement gap at the beginning of uh, kindergarten, uh, which shows up in things like an enormous difference in the vocabulary and uh, you know initial skills kids have. And there's a summer learning loss for low-income kids uh, between spring and fall. So the gap gets larger. Uh, Two-thirds of the gap is caused by that summer learning loss. About a third of it is present at kindergarten. They made those investments in preschool, high-quality, well-taught preschool for all kids, uh, summer learning opportunities for students who aren't going off to enrichment camps. Uh, that would be incredibly important in building a new kind of system. I, I think it would be hard to wave a wand and immediately eradicate poverty and unemployment, but these are issues that also have to be addressed by the federal government. And I point out in the flat world that in the 1970s, the Great Society and the War on Poverty actually really narrowed the achievement gap uh, for kids in schools, the opportunity gap. We had fewer kids in poverty. We had more kids getting uh, health care and preschool. We had uh, an equivalent number of kids from African-American, white, and Latino families going to college in 1975. All of those gaps have widened in the years since. So you know, we need uh, that kind of comprehensive approach. I would immediately invest in high-quality preparation for all teachers. And we could talk more about how to get there, but I think there's some 
very straightforward strategies to raise the quality of preparation. Make sure everybody who wants to teach gets it for free uh, if they will pledge to teach at least four or five years. Uh, and certainly everyone who will teach in high need fields and high need communities should uh, not have to go into debt, should get a high quality preparation at government expense to do that so that they can take the tools that they need to kids. And then I would focus us on the kinds of learning uh, and assessments and curriculum that are aimed at higher order thinking and problem solving skills. Uh, use assessments for improvement, not punishment, for curriculum improvement and professional learning. Uh, and if you put those pieces in place in a very purposeful way, you would see the whole system uh, rise to a new level uh, relatively quickly. There's the countries that have followed that approach have seen enormous gains and closing of the gap, uh, radical closings of achievement and opportunity gaps within a decade. And those that have pursued it longer uh, have gone from very low achieving and inequitable systems to very high achieving and equitable systems in a reasonably short period of time. And we've seen the success of that strategy in New Jersey, which uh, equalized school funding, put in place high quality preschool, put in place uh, more thoughtful assessments, uh, professional development and coaching strategies, uh, and in the course of a decade cut its achievement gap in half and became one of the highest performing states in the nation uh, with a population that is almost 50% students of color. So there are ways uh, that purposeful action could get strong results quickly. And I think we've got to start getting uh, busy around that agenda. So I'm having an interesting reaction to that. And I think it, it may lead to a, a valuable question. One of the things I've noticed about large institutions is that they typically try and define problems in such a way as to indicate that they have the solution. So when I hear extending the school year, uh, I kind of cringe a little. I understand the, the gap, but I almost feel as though that's sort of a self-serving message. The system's not working well, so we need more of the system. So what have those other countries done to help bring public opinion around to understanding the nuances and the virtues of the, a different approach? Well, one of the things that they've done is really um, engage the public uh, in and engage policymakers and educators and uh, you know uh, various stakeholder groups in an analysis of what the system is, what it needs to become, and how, how it ought to get there, and secure really substantial long-term strategic planning uh, out of that process. Uh, that has been, uh, rather than what I call popcorn reforms, which is what we do often in this country. We do this little reform here and that little reform there, and it comes and it goes, and nothing so together it's not very coherent. Um, they have, in, in the kinds of countries I describe as having made huge changes over time, they've really conceptualized an entirely new system uh, and thought about what are the building blocks we need to put in place to do that so that uh, learning kids are doing is rich and, uh, and thoughtful and exciting. Um, my, actually, my reaction is the same as yours to the notion that we would just extend the school year the way it is for a lot of kids because if it's not high quality work that kids are engaged in now, making them do more of it is not going to make a huge difference. And um, there is not a high correlation between the number of school days that, that systems have and the level of learning they produce. Um, I think the issue in our country is that for some kids there is no enrichment going on, no opportunity to be reading books and talking about them and engaging in exciting experiences uh, during those months, whereas other kids are, are getting all kinds of enrichment. So it's a different issue than just doing more of the same. But I think you have to have that kind of comprehensive look and you have to think about what the content of curriculum and assessment will be. We, we have treated uh, testing, for example, here as a black box and uh, allowed much of the curriculum to be increasingly directed by uh, multiple choice tests 
that uh, for low-income kids in a lot of communities has now become the curriculum, prepping for the test. Whereas you've got uh, in, um, in other countries um, that I've mentioned, uh, assessments that are, first of all, fewer, that are higher quality, that include uh, predominantly open-ended essays and items, research projects, scientific investigations, and so when they think about what it means to go to school and what you should be learning, they take seriously the question of what is the intellectual activity uh, that we want to have going on here. Uh, so uh, they uh, don't just attach a bunch of rewards and sanctions to uh, low quality test measures as we've done here and say let's let that be the tail that wags the dog. Uh, without thinking about what we want kids to be learning, doing, and able to um, do with their knowledge when they get out. And, you know, that's part of what uh, allows uh, people to move forward in a way that is not going to create that shudder that you had <laughs> uh, with the idea of more of the same. So we're going to move in just a minute to the Q&A portion. Uh, if you think you'd like to ask a question using the microphone, do be sure to go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your mic is configured. Otherwise, we will give you a chance to put questions in the chat. And if a question has been put in the chat and flown by and we didn't see it, we'll just ask you to post it again. Uh, Linda, before we go to the Q&A, um, I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about uh, what kinds of things you describe, I think in both books, uh, could or should be happening at the local level with regard to education and decision making? What kind of things should be going on at the local level uh, with regard to decision making? Correct. I mean, you talk a lot about, and this really resonated with me, and I, if I'm, I apologize for bringing a little bit of my own perspective to the interview, but uh, there were echoes of Tony Wagner to me in the idea that y you need to put teachers and parents and students and administrators in a position to actually work together to create solutions? Right. Yeah, and I think so part of that means that you don't, there, there do need to be some uh, areas that are regulated from above, but those need to be few and carefully selected. Uh, we need to be sure there are adequate resources in every community. We need to be sure that the health and safety of kids is protected. Uh, you know that uh, that teachers are adequately prepared. We can't leave everything to the local school. But once you've got the building blocks for a safe, responsible uh, system, then it's really important that decisions be made close to the families, to the community, um, by the folks who are doing the work, who are who know best what the um, needs are, uh, how to make the connections strong in the community with families, uh, how to understand the needs of the kids. And so we need to reserve to that local level uh, much more of the governance. Uh, and you know, I think it has to be engaged in the decision making that is, that is collaborative at the school and district level needs to be uh, engaged in by those who are affected by the decisions as well. Quite often we have, in um, particularly in urban districts, but even other districts as well, school boards where you know none of the people on the school board uh, have kids in the schools. They're using it as a political stepping stone to another office or whatever. That's not true everywhere. And there are many good school board members who are in and of the community and in and of the families, but it's not true everywhere. So we want to be sure that people who are affected by decisions are in a position to be engaged in that decision making. So you're not seeing the chat, but there are references right now to Yang Zhao and, and his book. And for those of you who don't know, I did interview him, and there's a recording of that at futureofeducation.com. And he was kind enough to remind me that I would never have been a professional broadcaster, but through the internet and having opportunities that wouldn't have existed before. OK, so Zeus has a question. And Zeus, I'm giving you the microphone to turn your mic on. You click on the, there you go. OK. Um, I had, uh, I've been involved in education reform and policy for quite some time. I'm now a learning consultant. And I think the re one of the reasons why I'm not working on the policy level right now is because so little of it seemed to be in 
focused on actual learning. So many of it had to do with the mechanical structure surrounding schools, um, equity issues. But I wanted to know from Linda's perspective how you can integrate learning specifically, developing an understanding of the actual inside of learners, their learning profiles, and connecting that into effective structures for preparing the learners of the future. I got a lot of distortion in the sound. I wonder, Steve, can you um, recapture that for me? Yeah, I'm not going to be able to because I was worrying about the sound at the same time. Uh, Zeus, I'm going to give you the mic back and ask you to go again to speak a little bit softer because I think it's the it's the low connection with Linda and see if that makes a difference. Yes, Linda, can you hear me now? Can you hear me? I'm so hard, so hard, so hard to make out the word. Oh, okay. Um, it should pick. Uh, I'll, I'll do my best and uh, make it short. Um, what I'm concerned with is how the policy apparatus seems to emphasize training and has little regard for the inside life of the learner and little concentration on how learning itself can be advanced through an understanding of how learners can contribute how learners can communicate how they learn in a structure that supports that. I was wondering if there are education reform policy movements that concentrate more on learning and learners from the inside than on training and reforms from the outside. So could you hear any of that, Linda? I just couldn't make most of it out. I'm really That's really okay. Sorry. So I think I'll an I'll help to answer it. I heard something about structures. Yeah. I was going to say, so Suze, I think a lot of that is in the book, um, in both books, but uh, the difference between uh, training and creating environments for learning. Um, and you do detail states and countries where you feel like they've done a really good job on uh, focusing on uh, centering on the learner. Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I, I think the argument I'm trying to make is that uh, it is possible to build, you know, systems that have the learner in mind at at their center in the way that they're organized, and there are places that have made good strides um, in that direction. So I just realized you have no idea how many people are listening or paying attention. So we do have 120 people who are listening live, and there's a, a chat that I'm really sorry you're not getting to see. But one of our regular listeners, Jackie Gerstein, saying, do you have a hope for the system as it exists now, or do you believe it should be torn down and started again from scratch? You know, I have a lot of hope for the system as it exists now, and I think that there are, again, many, many good things going on uh, that across the country uh, in many, many schools. I think most of our schools are not uh, seriously broken, although I think many are under-supported to do the work that they, you know, are trying to do. Um, and I think there are some schools that are really struggling, but that uh, addressing their needs is very doable. Uh, I don't think we have to start over, but I do think we have to step back and look at what we're doing uh, in, and figure out how to make the kinds of long-term, thoughtful, systemic investments that will have uh, that will build capacity uh, that lasts and grows rather than spending so much energy in one reform and another reform and another reform that uh, come and go without attending to those fundamental you know, resource equities and uh, investments in educators that allow uh, what we're trying to build to last. And so you know that there's a, a book in the business literature called Built to Last. And I think that the framework that's that's brought by that um, perspective is, is what we need to have policymakers and educators step back uh, and consider. Um, I'm about to write an article called Innovating Our Way to Failure. Uh, and by that I mean that you know in, innovations are fine, but if we're not really being thoughtful about how to make the kinds of um, innovative efforts uh, 
appropriately scaled up uh, if we're caught in a uh, sort of um, winners and losers, uh, you know, reward and punish mentality. There are going to be good schools and bad schools, and we're going to blow up the bad schools and fire the teachers and so on. Rather than a constructive investment strategy, we're going to waste a lot of energy uh, and not make the progress that we need to make. So we're getting a number of different questions. Um, Greg asked about a long list of schools who are doing it right. There are several mentioned in Linda's book, and also uh, I think Connie mentioned that um, Edutopia has uh, great resources in that regard. Um, there, what Michael asked, how do we increase public literacy on education system? How do we build the trust necessary for this new model? That's a great question. Um, I think one way that we build the trust, first of all, I will say the public as a whole has enormous respect for and trust in teachers. If you look at surveys of who's trusted in communities, teachers you know, and uh, educators rank near the very top above all kinds of other uh, you know, roles and uh, incumbents in various offices in communities. So part of it is uh, you know, reflecting on how to give uh, educators more voice in uh, telling the story about what they're doing. Most educators are you know, nose to the grindstone, not really thinking about you know, PR and all the rest of it. So part of it is getting more information out there about what uh, is going well and what schools are doing. and. Uh, how that can be made more solid, more sustained, uh, and um, more spread to other places. Uh, I think the other thing is that it's very important for educators and the education community to be willing to hold themselves accountable. Um, to say uh, we're not, you know, we we will look for ways to. Um, uh, be diagnostic about what the problems in schools are to organize uh, reforms. There's some wonderful examples in Ontario, for example, uh, and, in, and in England, but uh, Ontario is closer at hand, where school improvement was driven by uh, educators getting access to a lot of the research, to uh, choosing strategies that they would use for continuous improvement in their schools, to sharing successes across the system. Uh, et cetera, and it was it's a very um, high level of professional accountability and uh, clear um, uh, acceptance of and drive for continual improvement that um, the government has partnered with educators to do. So I think that's how we reclaim the trust is by uh, instituting those kinds of reforms and making sure that people understand. Uh, the productive work that is going on and the willingness of everyone in the education system to look uh, problems in the eye and uh, adopt strategies that are responsive to those. So I'm curious because um, I definitely think we're seeing a movement with the web and participative media and social media that takes power away from institutions and gives increasing power to a, a, a grassroots levels. And I think we're seeing that in education as well. I mean, I think having 120 people here on their own time wanting to talk about education policy is in some ways indicative of a, a larger change. Do you feel the same way? I think the energy is there. I think the grassroots are, uh, you know, as you say, kind of activated and ready to engage. Um, I've actually seen a lot of uh, energy in Washington, D.C. recently. Uh, grassroots organizations, uh, researchers, educators, uh, policymakers um, beginning to uh, kind of bring new perspectives to the conversation and their experiences to the conversation about what directions we ought to be going in, in the future. Uh, so I, I think that energy is there. And figuring out how to lasso it and make a dent in the policy um, activity that goes on uh, you know, has uh, some real potential. I think we have to figure out how to capitalize on the 
communication, dissemination, interest, and uh, energy that people bring. So Scott has his hand raised, but Scott, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to type your question in and I'll, I'll take it just because I think it's going to be hard for Linda to hear. Linda, there have been a couple of comments um, about um, the current leadership and the system um, and, um, and, and maybe sort of designed to draw you out in terms of an opinion about some of the things that are going on now. Do you have anything that you're willing to say in that regard? Um, I, I'm not sure what you're getting at. <laughs> you're talking about uh, in uh, uh, in the policy arena in terms of Washington? Right. Well, so uh, one listener says, I wonder why Obama did not apparently take Linda Darling-Hammond's professional advice and expertise when he moved from presidential candidate to president. Well, let me say, first of all, that uh, it was not my aspiration to move to Washington, and I have uh, reasons to need to be where I am in California that, uh, you know, were uh, active at that time. So uh, the other thing I should say is that I am continuing to work in a variety of ways um, with folks in the administration uh, and folks on the Hill and so on, um, although there is a... A substantial uh, plane ride between between where I am and and the East Coast. Uh, so, uh, and I think there are a lot of people who are in the mix, uh, helping and advising the administration in all of its agencies about where to go. And there are lots of uh, ideas that get vetted and arm wrestled and. Um, uh, where there are agreements and disagreements. So, uh, you know, I think it's uh, not a question of the president not reaching out for advice so much as uh, there are lots of viewpoints about education in this country that are uh, represented in the policies that are being constructed. Okay, we've got top, probably time for one more question. Uh, if I've missed one, let me know. Uh, one question uh, from Hickstro was, in your book you mentioned the National Writing Project as one model for teacher professional development. In what ways do you feel this network is successful and how can individual teachers engage in their own professional development to work within the existing system? I like the National Writing Project for a number of reasons. First of all, it really is grounded in the work of uh, of expert dedicated teachers who are committed to creating a uh, professional uh, community of teachers around the teaching of writing. Uh, the work that people do in professional development actually engages them in the, the writing process themselves that they will be teaching to students. So it, it brings an authentic approach to the learning process and that I think carries over into the classroom. It offers this peer-to-peer uh, -peer resource uh, across the country that is informed by a lot of accumulated expertise over time. So there are many things about that uh, um, particular organization that uh, make it a magnet for teachers uh, who get a tremendous amount of support and leadership opportunity out of it. And I'd like to see that be the characteristic of all kinds of professional development. And there certainly are lots of other uh, projects and communities of teachers that have that characteristic. What uh, I worry about is that the uh, funding support and the access to those kinds of resources has gotten much less over recent years. We recently just did a study of professional development in the United States. And uh, what we found was that more teachers are getting access to one-day workshops the spray and pray, drive-by approach, but fewer are getting access over recent years to the kind of sustained uh, opportunity to work collaboratively uh, on uh, problems of practice in a curriculum area uh, that they would need to really transform their practice and bring uh, all of the good knowledge that they'd like to bring to their kids. So we need, again, um, to step back from the paradigm that became particularly prominent during the No Child Left Behind years, uh, kind of going back to uh, fixing teachers in workshops 
to a paradigm that really understands how to spread knowledge, expertise, and share practice in a much more sustained way, uh, you know, with coaching and peer-to-peer um, -peer collaboration uh, that was much more prominent um, a decade ago than it is today. So Linda, I'm clapping for you. You can't see, but we have a little clapping hand icon. And I'm going to encourage others to express appreciation as well and just let you know that you, there is lots of clapping. I don't think there's any way in an hour to really have covered the sort of brilliant depth of your books. But education, the flat world and education, and the right to learn, uh, the two that I looked at, and uh, highly recommend them both. Really appreciate your coming on. If you and the audience have strong feelings about education, please feel free to go to our educationdeclarations.com site and let other people know what you feel. Uh, thanks again to Illuminate and Learn Central uh, for hosting the webinar series. And here's the list of upcoming webinars. Linda, thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. And I apologize to you and the listeners for having my technological glitches that slowed me down at the beginning, but it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for the wonderful question. Now, a great delight to have you on. Thanks so much for the book and the research and the 30 years of devotion. Thanks to everybody for coming tonight. Uh, sure appreciate you being here. Remember tomorrow, Carol Dweck on Mindset should be another uh, terrific evening. Uh, have a great night, and thank you all.